Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thanks again, IV. So, uh, so we're in week number three of our, uh, of our series on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, questions and answers in our search for meaning. And if, if there is a book in the Bible that is written uh, from a more secular point of view, this would be the book. Uh, and uh, early on, in the tenure of the young King Solomon, God came to Solomon and invited him to ask for anything. And he could have asked for money or for fame or for pleasure, but what the young Solomon asked uh, for from God was wisdom. And God was extremely pleased. If you know the story, you know that God was extremely pleased with this request from the young King of Israel. And uh, we see God's response uh, to that prayer in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. And it says this, Behold, Solomon, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall ever arise after you. In other words, you're going to be the wisest person to ever live. Now, if you fast forward to the likely time in which this was written, and let's just assume for the sake of argument that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, you, you wonder if the older version of Solomon is regretting the request that he made of God early on in life, because the more seasoned Solomon becomes, the more he associates the wisdom that he had once asked God for with unhappiness, striving, struggle, and loss. In verse 18, he puts it this way, in much wisdom is much vexation. And so, vexation is a word that's associated with being annoyed, being frustrated, being tormented internally. So, in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases wisdom increases sorrow. So, Eugene Peterson's take uh, in the message on this particular verse is this, much learning earns you much trouble. The more you know, the more you hurt. The more you know, the more you hurt. And so, Solomon really is the ultimate test case. Uh, he's been given a wisdom that surpasses all wisdom. And if Solomon cannot find meaning in his accrued wisdom, then who can? So, I'd like to explore that question under three headings. Uh, and the first is that wisdom under the sun, as Solomon calls it, is an unhappy business. 
Second, wisdom under the sun ruthlessly puts us in our place. And then finally, there's a wisdom beyond the sun that is sorely needed. So, first of all, wisdom under the sun, as Solomon refers to it, is an unhappy business. He says in verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business. The Hebrew word translated unhappy, you could also say it's bad business or it's, it's evil business. Those are all legitimate translations. He goes on, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and all is vanity, all is striving after the wind. This word striving, it, it, it's, it's, it's the image of busying ourselves in order to take charge of this one little life that we've been given and, and this one little world in which we live. That's what he means by striving, and to do that through a life of learning and wisdom. You know, we get our education, we get our degrees, and so on, somehow thinking that that is going to position us to control things better. But he says it's like chasing after the wind, because everything is out of our control. Uh, you know, like the leaf blower in the backyard during, during the fall, right? You spend all of this time, you know, with this, this industrial strength leaf blower, perhaps, you know, trying to, to collect all the leaves into a pile and just the smallest little breeze will undo the work that you've, you've, you've done and just completely frustrate you. You know, everything that you have gathered scatters just from a slight little breeze. There's no way to control the wind. You know, it's like the song from Alanis Morissette called Ironic. It's like rain on your wedding day, a free ride when you've already paid the good advice that you just didn't take. It's like winning the lottery and dying the next day. And she says, who would have thought? It figures. And that's a great summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. Who would have thought? It figures. Vexation, vanity, vapor. Here are a few examples. Those of us who, especially in midlife like myself, who want to take charge of our health, especially around January, new workout routines, new new diets. Isn't it interesting? There's like 50 different names of 50 different diets, and they're all the same thing. But that's another, it's another eat your vegetables, eat protein, you know, eat the right carbs. Um, but we all want to take charge of our health at some point, right? And yet, at some point, we realize this, that there are some people in the world who take zero care of their bodies, who put their bodies through extreme distress, through the ringer, one person who comes to mind is Keith Richards, the lead guitarist for the Rolling Stones, who is famous for being 74, a longtime heroin addict, a longtime alcoholic, still a chain smoker, decades of hard, hard living, and he's like the Energizer Bunny. He just takes a licking and he keeps on ticking. I saw this uh, picture a, a couple of days ago uh, that, that came up in my social media feed of Keith Richards playing guitar at age 74, dragging on another cigarette, and the caption to that picture said this, we all need to start worrying about what kind of world we are going to leave for Keith Richards. 
And then there's the rest of us who spend twice as much as other people on our groceries because everything has to be whole foods, everything has to be organic, nothing can have antibiotics, etc. And we go to the gym five days a week. We get diagnosed with cancer at age 32 and we're dead the next year. We drop dead of a heart attack mowing the grass at age 41. Isn't it ironic? Who would have thought? Figures. Raising children, that's something we want to get a hold of. Uh, For those of us who are given charge of caring for children or youth, whether as parents or, or as youth leaders or as sort of the surrogate big brothers and big sisters to, to young people, aunts and uncles and so on. We want to get it right with our kids, right? And what you put in is what you get out. There's wisdom about raising children right. And, 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 and yet there's this reality. There are parents who neglect and abuse and mistreat their children for years, and their children grow up to be awesome stellar human beings, kind-hearted, happy, amazing. They call home every day to the parents who treated them so poorly for all those years. And then you have others who read every single book there is under the sun on how to get it right as a parent, how to raise and nurture children and cultivate an environment so that they will grow up and become flourishing adults, and we absorb the wisdom, we apply it, we model it, and they grow up unhappy and entitled and angry victims, rejecting us. We never hear from them. The ones we raise right turn out horrible. The ones we raise wrong turn out wonderful. Isn't it ironic? Who would have thought? It figures. Science, technological progress. You know, there have been three humanist manifestos written since the Enlightenment by the secular humanist uh, and scientific and academic communities. 1933, 1973, 2003. They all have essentially a single consensus, and that is human beings have unlimited potential to create a brave new world, a utopia, heaven on earth. Who needs God? Who needs transcendence? Who needs anything else other than the the material world in which we live? We, We are material girls, and we are living in a material world, and so on, right? We've created the automobile. We can climb into a big box and get, you know, get, get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away in just an hour or so called an airplane. We put a man on the moon. We've got this. The human will and the human intellect are so advanced and so sophisticated now that we can control the climate, the manifestos say. We can eliminate poverty. We can heal every form of disease. We can unify the nations and the cultures. How is it working out for us? You know, today we are 85 years in the future of the first manifesto, 45 years in the future of the second, and 15 years in the future of the third. And here we are with floods, hurricanes, wildfires, cancer, Alzheimer's, over 50% of the world's population still living below poverty on less than $3 a day, abuse, racism, sexism, classism, partisan politics, and cable news. Isn't it ironic? Who would have thought? Figures. 
Even in the Bible, we see this. The more we live by the wisdom of God, the more difficult things will become. The more we will be prone to suffer. Job, the most righteous man in the land, becomes the paradigm for suffering for the rest of the world. King David, because of his faithfulness, has a bounty placed on his head by a paranoid king. Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, we know how things ended for him. The Apostle Paul, the the disciples, all of whom are zealously trying to apply the wisdom of God in their lives, end up martyred just like their Savior. You know, maybe the indigo girls were right. I went to the doctor, I went to the mountain, I looked at the children, I drank from the fountain. There's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. And the less I seek my source for some definitive, the less I seek wisdom, the closer I am to find. Maybe they're right. Solomon seems to perhaps think so. It is all, he says, an unhappy business. Vanity, striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Pass the Xanax and welcome to church. (laughs) How are we all doing? So that's the good news. It gets harder because wisdom under the sun also puts us in our place in a ruthless sort of way. So I'll just make this point through three different thinkers. One is a writer, one's a scientist, and one's a philosopher. The writer teaches us that under the sun, we are insignificant. We don't matter. Leonard Wolf, the husband of Virginia Woolf, he was a British political theorist. He wrote over 20 books on literature, politics, and economics. Here's, here's how he summed up his life. I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. You know, Russ Ramsey pointed out an illustration that Tim Keller gave along these lines uh, between services today uh, some time ago, and he was talking about, Tim was talking about uh, Strong's Concordance. This man whose last name was Strong, his entire life's work was to catalog each and every word of the Bible, uh, you know, to indicate its meaning and its place in the context and everything else. Here's Tim's observation. Strong's entire life's work can now be accomplished by a seven-year-old in less than ten minutes. 
How about that? Who would have thought? Figures. You know, chapter 2, Solomon, who built the temple that his father David could not, who had untold wealth, who had the admiration and the esteem of kings and queens all over the known world, says this at the end, I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labor under, under the sun. It was vexation. It was torment. It was vanity. It was vapor. Has anybody ever blown you a kiss? Did the wind ever hit you? Or did it miss? Every blown kiss is a swing and a miss because it, it just it vaporizes before it gets to its target. Every kiss that, that wisdom under the sun blows at you, it never makes it to its destination. Here's another one. Carl Sagan, famous astronomer, and how he teaches us that we are small. We're not only insignificant, we're small. Have you ever heard of the pale blue dot? This is a photograph of planet Earth commissioned in 1990 by Carl Sagan uh, for Voyager 1, the space probe Voyager 1, to take a picture of the Earth from a few billion miles away. So if I could ask for the, uh, the insight here. So there's us. That beam that we're inside of is the beam of the one sun, the one star in the universe around which we orbit. Here's how Carl Sagan summed up this picture, this pale blue dot known as planet Earth. He says this, that's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Mm. Past the Xanax. Isn't it ironic? Who would have thought? It figures. You know, King David expresses similar things in the eighth Psalm. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth when I look at Your heavens. When I look at the work of your fingers, what is man? What is man? And thus, here's the third thinker, a philosopher, Peter Kreeft. Thus, because we are so insignificant and small, we are by choice distracted. There are two options that the universe gives us to deal with these realities under the sun. Either face our insignificance and our smallness head on, and most of us are going to say, no thanks, I, I, I'm not really into despair and depression, but thank you for the invitation. And option two is distraction. So, Peter Kreef says this, that life under the sun is like a mansion that has a big gaping hole in the middle of the universe, and instead of facing the hole and dealing with it, what we do is we cover it with a, with a busy uh, patterned piece of wallpaper. We distract ourselves with some form of, you know, visible, you know, visual noise. And then he goes on and he says, it's like that same mansion 
with a rhinoceros in the house, and the rhinoceros represents the realities of misery and death. And the way that we deal with it is by not dealing with it. Instead, we just cover the rhinoceros with a million mice. We're distracted. Is there anything other than depression and distraction? This is where the release valve comes in because there, there's a wisdom beyond the sun that is given to us. For those of us who have eyes to hear and for hearts to receive and understand, there's a wisdom beyond the sun that is sorely needed. So this, this phrase, whenever you see it in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, he's talking about the materialist view of things. Life in this world, in this universe, without respect to or thought of God and of transcend, transcendence and a bigger story and a bigger picture than the pale blue dot upon which we live and move and have our being. And so, there's a wisdom beyond the sun, though, that shows us a much bigger picture than this. James speaks of it this way, it's a wisdom from above. You know, what if, if we're looking at things from beyond the sun, call it, you know, God's Doppler radar, where we can see everything from above and beyond. What if the pale blue dot is actually not a death blow to our significance after all, but rather a validation of it? What if? What if small, according to the wisdom that's beyond the sun, is actually big? What if it's the smallest things that produce the greatest things, like little bitty mustard seeds, which is how Jesus said the kingdom of God always starts with some little bitty mustard seed that eventually will pro provide shade for, for everyone and everything as it slowly grows and becomes what it's meant to be. What if our small, insignificant planet is actually the only place where known life forms exist in all the universe. So, there's this thing called the Fermi Paradox. Scientists asking the question, where is everybody? Because if you look at the probabilities, there are actually billions of stars, like, like our sun, there are actually billions of stars in billions of galaxies that are surrounded by billions of planets that are actually inhabitable, like planet Earth. And so, the, the Fermi paradox is, is basically this, this, this confounding struggle with what scientists call the Drake equation. And the Drake equation is this, the probability of alien life in the Milky Way galaxy alone, and just for perspective, there are more galaxies in the universe than there are grains of sand on the Earth's oceans. In the Milky Way alone, the scientific probability of intelligent life elsewhere points to how there should be somewhere between 1,000 and 100 million other Earth-like civilizations, and yet there is zero evidence of intelligent life anywhere ever except on the pale blue dot. 
So maybe we're not quite as small as Carl Sagan theorized. But it gets more interesting because what if also on our small insignificant planet it was a small insignificant people that God picked out, if there's room in your heart for the idea that there might be a God, if God picked out a small insignificant people named Israel who have given us the law, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, and that actually functions as the headquarters of God's global mission and God's universal mission ultimately to heal and redeem and restore every person, every place, and everything under the sun that is united with Him through Jesus Christ. And what if from that small little insignificant nation of Israel, God also handpicked two small insignificant towns named Bethlehem and Nazareth, where the true wisdom of God, where the true Lagos would be born and raised. The Lagos, that's the word that the Greeks used for wisdom. And it says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. Quite literally, it says, in, begin, in the beginning there was the Lagos. In the beginning there was the wisdom. And the wisdom became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the wisdom was full of grace and truth. And what if His small, insignificant life, that boy from two small, insignificant towns in a small, insignificant nation on a small, insignificant pale blue dot in a small, insignificant solar system in a small, insignificant galaxy, what if he has had more impact on the world than every politician, scientist, and sage combined? What if? Who would have thought? It doesn't figure. But who would have thought? What does this also finally say about us? What does it say about my small, insignificant life? Remember what Karl Marx once said? I am nothing, and I should be everything. Your instinct is right, sir. You should be everything, because as one among the crown of God's creation, the human race, you are everything, according to the biblical narrative. If we go back to the question that David was asking, the rhetorical question, what is man that you should desire him? What, what is man that you should care for him, be mindful of him? He goes on, you have made the human race a little bit less than the heavenly beings. The ESV actually suggests that we might translate it a little less than God. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion. You've put all things under his feet, all things, the whole cosmos under his feet. What if this unhappy business is actually temporary? What if it's just that we, the crown of God's creation, defined as being bigger and more significant than all of the galaxies combined? What if we are simply sick in the waiting room until the great physician says, it's your turn, come on back, it's healing time? And what if the rest of the galaxies, the rest of the universe, as Romans 8 tells us, is waiting as if, you know, per N.T. right, on tiptoe, 
for us to experience the healing, the ultimate and final resurrected healing that the great physician Jesus has promised is coming, because once that happens, it triggers the healing of every other person, place, and thing under Christ. It's right there in Romans 8, all of creation groans, waiting in eager expectation for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And once we are set completely free to be who God has created us to be, the galaxies will merely be our shadow. What if? It turns out that there is something in every human being called a soul. And that soul is a container, and nothing in all creation, including the entire creation itself, is big enough to fill one human soul to capacity. You have made us for yourself, Augustine prayed, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or Pascal, you know, talked about the God-shaped vacuum that is in every human soul, And until God is the one who occupies that human soul, we will remain unfilled, unsatisfied. I'd love to steal a lyric from from Matthew West. This is God speaking to His children on this pale blue dot of ours. I love you more than the sun and the stars that I taught how to shine, and you shine for me too. You remember God's promise to Abraham? As many as the stars are in the sky, as many as the sand grains on the seashore, that's how many children I'm going to bring to myself through this seed, Jesus Christ, who will crush the serpent's head, who is the Alpha and Omega and the beginning and the end. And as Matthew West also says in his song, this is, this is more than you can fathom right now, and it's more than you can imagine, but it's real. You know, as Plato said in 370 B.C., in his work called Phaedrus, things are not always as they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few or the wisdom of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. Can you perceive it? Can you see how big and how significant you are because of how big and significant the one from Nazareth and Bethlehem and Israel and the pale, the pale blue dot remains. Isn't that ironic? And isn't it good? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our significance does not come from our size. Our significance comes from our name, which has been given to us by the one who breathed the galaxies into existence and the one who sustains the galaxies and the one who will ultimately renew and redeem and restore the galaxies through his risen power. Father, help us to see even our lives under the sun from the perspective of the wisdom beyond the sun, that we might have hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.